Reconciliation is the restoration of right relationships, as we have been considering this topic now for six or seven weeks this summer at Church of the Cross. It is the exchange of hostility for peace made possible by the cross of Jesus, so that instead of division and rivalry and violence, which mark and mar human history because of sin, we find in the work of God the restoration of diversity in unity, creating harmony. This design of his original creation. God creating a loving communion in which former enemies become friends. This work of reconciliation that we are called and privileged to be a part of is not natural at all. It's supernatural. God is leading the way. And God is calling us to follow in his footsteps, and by his power, and by his presence. So we might expect that when we turn to the beginning of the story of God's great work of reconciliation, when God will take the initiative and enter into human history in the person of the Son, that when Jesus begins to open his mouth, he will speak about reconciliation. Because this is the heart of what God is doing in the world. And yet, if we follow, and we'll be in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 4 specifically, if we follow the actual account of the ministry of Jesus, what we find when he opens his mouth is not a word primarily about reconciliation, but rather it's a word about justice. We actually catch glimpses of this in the, early cha- in the first chapter of Luke's Gospel in the well-known Song of Mary, where Mary sings out after encountering the angel and being willing to serve as the bearer of God's Son. She sings out with joy and she says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. That is that this new work of God, this new work is going to bring about a distortion, a change, an upheaval in the existing order of the world that will bring about liberty and freedom and equality and dignity to those who have been excluded from those things by those in power, by those in the ascendancy, by those who enjoy privilege. So when Jesus walks into his hometown of Nazareth, having spent a few, probably a few weeks, we're not sure how long, in the couple of verses right after his temptation, where it says he went around the synagogues in Galilee, proclaiming the good news. Then he walks into the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth, and he joins those who are there for worship. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Why was it given to him? Probably because he had already developed a reputation. He was being talked about in the region of Galilee. It says in verse 15, he was being glorified by all. And so, he was handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he took up the scroll And he opened it up, and what did he read? He read Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And here's what he said, standing before his hometown. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That has echoes to the Old Testament idea of jubilee, a time when there would be a massive resetting of the scales, when those who were have-nots would suddenly have access again to the resources 
and political mechanisms that would enable them to live a dignified life as human beings made in God's image. It was a, a day of, of, of leveling the playing field that was tremendously good news for those whose lives had been distorted by the injustices of this world and of their neighbor. Now, this should come as no surprise. God has revealed himself as a God of justice. Moses sings about this in Deuteronomy 32. The rock, he says, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. We're told in the Psalms repeatedly about God's justice. In Psalm 33 and 37, God loves justice. In Psalms 89 and 97, justice is the foundation of his throne. In Psalm 9, that throne has been established for the purpose of justice. And in numerous Psalms, it says that God will execute justice for the needy, for the oppressed, and for the fatherless, as we read in Psalm 146 earlier. That justice that, in, that embodies the heart of God, that is part of the character of God, is then to be expressed through God's king, his, his anointed one, and through God's people, his chosen ones. So Psalm 72, the king judges the poor with justice. He is to defend the cause of the poor and give deliverance to the children of the needy while crushing the oppressor. In Psalm 112, the paradigmatic godly man is said to be one who conducts his affairs with justice. Justice is so critical, we're told in the Old Testament, that in Isaiah 58 and Micah 6, this is what God really wants from his people. He wants them to be a people of justice. This is what matters. It's not like justice is an add-on item that you put in your shopping cart so that you can get free shipping. It's not like that kind of peripheral, unimportant, just kind of all added on if it fits and it works with my other purposes. No, it's the main event. It's the main thing that we're called to be about as God's people. So he says in these words that many of you will know, he has told you, O man, this is Micah 6.8, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Later in his ministry, Jesus will reiterate this calling when he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his justice. We know it as righteousness. The word could be translated either way and it's probably better understood in our context as justice. All of these things will be added to you. The Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke says this about Micah 6.8, and the words for justice and kindness or mercy. Both, he says, pertain to the deliverance of an oppressed weaker party by the stronger party. But whereas mishpat, that's the word for justice, puts emphasis on the action, hesed, which is the word we use for steadfast love, puts the emphasis on the attitude behind the action. Justice is the work of liberating people from oppression. Of lifting up their lives to receive what is their due as image bearers made in God's image. And the biblical understanding of justice includes that work of liberation. And also includes the work of concern and generosity and advocacy and voice for those who have none. The reality is that justice, understood 
from a human perspective, that is always, almost always, the justice of the strong. And the justice of the strong contains much injustice within it, as the strong and those in power will work to perpetuate their advantage by exploiting those who are incapable or handicapped from defending themselves. Think about one one plank of justice in our own nation's history, the separate but equal doctrine. That was justice. That was our version of justice for a long time, for decades, in this nation. But we knew it was just a charade. It was just a facade. It was really perpetuating injustice, inequality, undermining people in our community who didn't look like us or think like us if we were in the majority. Until finally the lid was blown off of that with the Supreme Court decision in 1954. Justice therefore, from a biblical perspective, always includes being a voice for the voiceless, a voice for those who's, who the systems of the day work against. This is what, uh, I love King Lemuel's mother's oracle in Proverbs 31, but she says, his mom gives the king instruction, and this is what her oracle says in verses 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy because they cannot defend themselves in the ways that the strong can, because they will continue to be the subject of mistreatment and injustice. So you, king, in your position of power, in your position representing the God who put you in that position, I want you to defend their rights, to speak up for them, to judge in their case, to advocate for them. Is it any surprise, then, that King Lemuel's greater descendant, Jesus, the king of kings, the one who takes the throne of his father David, when he enters into Nazareth on that day in Luke 4, he begins by speaking words of justice. By saying, that's why I've come. I've come to to provide liberty to the captives. I've come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I've come to bring good news to the poor. The poor, the captives, and the oppressed, these are all victims of injustice. And Jesus says, I've come to work justice in their lives giving them their due, bringing them up from the pit. He says in verse 21, today's scripture is fulfilled, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This long-awaited justice has come. So the God of reconciliation begins his earthly ministry by saying he fulfills the longing for justice that the Old Testament has celebrated and proclaimed that marks his character. And that means that if we are to be a people of reconciliation, following the God of reconciliation, we must be a people of justice. Justice understood in this sense in which we have understood it thus far, of the liberation of the captives and the oppressed, of generosity and care for the poor and the marginalized. Interestingly, in Job 31, Job says that when he gave to the poor with his wealth, that he was not doing a work of charity or mercy, but he was doing a work of justice. God calls his people to be engaged in this work. 
Justice works tirelessly for, the equal dignity and access, for equal dignity and access in a world where this has been distorted by sin. It is not possible, that is, to talk about reconciliation, to be serious about reconciliation, and not to be serious about the work of justice, about fighting injustice, and naming it, and punishing perpetrators, and liberating captives. To pursue reconciliation without the work of justice in this way is to reinforce the injustice that prevails in our world. And more often, this is to reinforce the plank of those in power and privilege. Saying that we're just happy with the unjust status quo. We, are, we benefit from that unjust status quo. And so, why don't we just get along? Why don't we all just reconcile? And things can stay as they are. And that doesn't work, because if things are broken, they must be addressed. We must be active and engaged in setting them right. At times in this series, I've talked directly about racial reconciliation, and I'm going to do so now for a moment. We've covered this at times over the last several weeks in different ways. But what we cannot do in a nation that has been scarred deeply by the sin of racism, by the lie of white superiority, and that still bears the marks of that sin in a very deep way, and in a nation where the church was so deeply implicated in that, in that ungodly, dehumanizing lie. What we cannot do is avoid the conversation about justice when it comes to trying to address the wrongs of racism and their ongoing tentacles in our present world. I know this gets controversial and challenging. At the kickoff to the new race initiative that Emmanuel Gospel Center is doing here in Boston, David Wright, the executive director for the Black Ministerial Alliance, gave a plenary talk. And he said something that he said would kind of ruffle our feathers, and I want to repeat it here. He said, you know, to talk about reconciliation between blacks and whites in this nation, and, and, and I would say between black Christians and white Christians in this nation, to make it slightly more specific. And he said, admittedly, he was focusing on the black and white question of racial injustice, but it could be also expanded to include other non-white populations in our country, such as Native American, Latino, or Asian as well, then you must, he said, talk about reparations. To talk about reconciliation, we must talk about reparations. And I would argue that, again, as hard as that is, that that is true. In their book, Divided by Faith, which I've referenced before in this series, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith point to a 1995 study that just blew me away about the state of things in the present. Granted, it was 20 years ago, but I imagine these statistics still generally hold up. On a study of wealth disparity between blacks and whites in America, published in 1995 in a book called Black Wealth and White Wealth by Melvin Oliver and Thomas Shapiro. And what they reveal through that study is the staggering reality that the median net worth of blacks is just 8% that of whites in this nation. 
I was, I was spending some time with a former person, a former member of our community who's now in Washington, D.C., and who's spending a lot of her heart and work on these questions of racial justice for a nonprofit, not an explicitly Christian organization, but for a nonprofit organization. And she's done a lot of thinking and study around this. And she, she referenced an institute in, in North Carolina that has spent time trying to educate people about the disparities in America that are the direct lineage, result and lineage of our racist, racist history. And she said one of the thought experiments that they'll use, and I, I think it's powerful, is the fact that let's imagine that a group of us, that four of us, have decided to play a game of Monopoly. And we've been playing Monopoly for a long time. Like, Monopoly takes forever. My kids love to play Monopoly. It just takes forever. But we've been playing Monopoly for a few hours as a group of four. And all the properties have been bought up, and some of the properties now have houses and hotels on them, and the, the, the wealth has been accumulated. And then somebody comes into the living room and says, hey, I'd love to play Monopoly too. And we say to that person, well, sure, c come on up and, and play with us. And then we start to continue to play the very same game that we were playing. It just doesn't work. And they use that as a metaphor, as an illustration, as a way of thinking about And I know it's uncomfortable, but as a way of thinking about the present-day reality in this nation. And it's a reality like that that somebody that I respect and love, like David Wright, a godly Christian leader in our city, says when we want to talk about reconciliation on the question of racial justice and injustice in this nation, we have to talk about reparation. We have to talk about this work of real justice that begins to address the systemic inequalities and biases in our systems that create dramatic inequalities. And we have to do that. And if we're going to be in right relationship with one another across racial lines in this community, then it's so important that if you're white like me, that you're willing to say, look, I know things are imbalanced, and I know there's an ugly and ungodly history that has been a part of this that my ancestors are responsible for in many ways. And I'm sorry. There has to be an acknowledgement of that reality in order for there to be a working toward true reconciliation. There has to be a partnering in the work of justice in order for there to be a true move toward reconciliation. We can't turn a blind eye as the church in this nation to the systems that continue to impact these inequalities. We must do justice. I'm not telling you what that means exactly, but I think that we as the people of God must engage that work together. Think about it, pray about it, educate ourselves on it, and begin to learn and be humble, walk humbly with our God in this way. This upside-down work, that, and this is Jesus coming in. Jesus is coming into an unjust culture, an unjust society, and he's saying, look, I'm going to flip things on their head. I'm going to turn the world upside down. My justice is going to change the reality of things. Do you know who didn't like that message? It was the rich. And that's why Jesus says, if you're rich, it's hard for you to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's so hard for you to enter the kingdom. It's harder for you to do that than it is for a camel to enter through the eye of, to pass through the eye of a needle. And Jesus is making hyperbole there, because he then goes on to say what's impossible with man is impossible with God. But he's saying, if you are on the upward side of that system, this work that I'm doing to level things out is going to be painful in certain ways, and there is going to be a high percentage of rejection of that work, because it's going to be costly. But thanks be to God that Jesus cares as much about those who are oppressors 
as he did about those who were oppressed. He cares as much about those who are in power as he does about those who are out of power. He enters and he speaks about justice. But here's where I want to bring this toward a conclusion, is to say that, that divine justice is deeply surprising. This Jesus who entered into the world and began to turn things upside down, where does he end up in Luke's gospel? In every gospel. He ends up on the cross. But in Luke's gospel in particular, he on the cross utters some unforgettable words. With arms outstretched when he says, Father, forgive them, my oppressors. My, the, those who are perpetrating violence against me. Those who have the upper hand and are using their upper hand to literally destroy my life. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. I submit to you that Jesus' actions at the cross, at the end of this narrative, demonstrate to us that there's something deeper. There's a deeper logic at work in divine justice, more than just the work of leveling the playing field, more than just the work of righting past wrongs. There's this work of bringing together this work of embracing the other and finding and in that embrace our place in the equal and dignified mosaic of God's making through the cross and by the Spirit. This is why divine justice includes realities like forgiveness and love, which alone can deal with the injustices of the past and bring former enemies together. You cannot imagine blindfolded lady justice with scales in one hand and a sword in the other hand advocating for forgiveness as a policy. But you see the divine God of justice on the cross modeling to us the reality of forgiveness at the heart of his work of justice. Why? Because his goals are higher. Because reparations, however right and good they may be, and however much we all are called to talk about them, think about them, pray about them, and work toward them for the sake of true justice, however hard that work will be, reparations will never, never heal the wounds of the past that are unforgettable in this life. They will never heal them. Those injustices that have been done, and I'm not at this point only talking about racial injustice, but all kinds of injustices, many of which many of you in this congregation have suffered in deeply harmful ways. Those will never be undone. So what is it that we can do that brings about some kind of new territory, new ground, new place to stand? It is forgiveness. It's this divine work of forgiveness that aims not just for a justice of righting past wrongs or rep repairing past wrongs, but aims for the true justice of divine embrace. Every step in the fight for justice, if it's God's justice, is a step on the road to reconciliation. One can imagine a distorted view of justice in which every different interest group and party has equal access to systems of power and privilege. That certainly doesn't exist, but one can imagine that scenario and yet remains divided, full of mistrust, and pushing each other away. That is not God's vision of justice. But divine justice is shaped by divine love because God, the God of justice, is God, the God of love. And God's ultimate end and heart is to bring us together into that mosaic. J.D. Otis Roberts, in his 1971 book, Liberation and Reconciliation of Black Theology, 
beautifully talks about this. When he says there, and he's doing it in the, in the context of race relations between blacks and whites, but he says there can be no real reconciliation between blacks and whites henceforth without liberation. Black youth desire to move into a future where one does not need to stoop because of black skin. And that's absolutely right. There has to be that work of liberation in any context of injustice. We must be liberated, he says. Christ is the liberator. And that's what Jesus walks into Nazareth and says, I'm here to do. I'm here to liberate those who are victims of injustice. But Roberts continues, the liberating Christ is also the reconciling Christ. The one who liberates reconciled, and the one who reconciles liberates, he says. So this work of liberation of writing and of reparation, must be on the way to a divine justice marked by love. Liberation, yes. And we certainly have room to explore this and grow in this as a community who wants to take the ministry of reconciliation seriously because we are called to be the foretaste of that in God's world. But even as we consider that, we will never stop there. But in the shadow of the one who embraces his enemies, we will work, I pray, tirelessly, to embrace one another in the love of Christ. That is our ultimate good. That is our neighbor's ultimate good. That is our oppressor's ultimate good our enemy's ultimate good. And justice is to seek that good for which we were all created. Amen.